They said it wouldn't last, and they said that you can't drive profitable and incremental revenue through the affiliate channel. But here we are, 20 years later, and the affiliate channel is alive and kicking and generating profitable revenue for thousands of retailers across the globe. Hi, I am Jamie Birch, your host of the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast, where we talk to some of the industry's best and brightest about their careers, about leadership, and about how to drive profitable revenue through the affiliate channel. Well, welcome to the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast. I am Jamie Birch, founder and CEO of JEB Commerce, uh, your award-winning affiliate marketing management agency. So today we have an awesome guest, a special guest, and yes, one of my favorite people uh, in the industry, maybe one of my favorite people uh, on the planet, Sarah Bisco Blay, uh, formerly of ShareSell. But before I introduce you uh, to her and our episode, I want to tell you a little bit about a product, a service that we have available to you um, called the Strategy uh, Roadmap Development. So a lot of our clients come to us to manage their programs for a very long time uh, and hit their, their growth goals uh, every month, every quarter. Uh, but maybe you don't need that and you just need to know what the strategy is you need to take to grow your affiliate program. So we have that service to you. You can go to jebcommerce.com slash services slash affiliate dash program dash strategy dash development. Now, I know that is a mouthful. I will include a link in the uh, show notes for you to go to uh, so you can have access to that. So in that, we go over your network setup, which network, are you on the right network, your return order setup. We talk about your competing brands, how you compare to the competition. We do a full gap analysis on your current partners, um, your your top affiliates, who you need to be outreaching to and, and who they are. We introduce you to those affiliates. And we do a comprehensive affiliate activation strategy. We look at your affiliate category diversification, uh, a review of all your communications and compliance. This is really important. FC, FTC audits and all the other things you need to be compliant. We look at your commission rate and your cookie days. We compare that with, you know, are they optimized and set up to achieve your ROI goals, your new customer acquisition goals, and a whole bunch more. So if you want to get access to that, you can email me at gethelp at jebcommerce.com or you can go to the link uh, in our show notes for our affiliate program strategy development. Now, on to today's episode. I just had such a great time. Sarah is amazing and one of the most genuine and authentic human beings uh, that I've had uh, the good fortune uh, to work with. Uh, and, you know, we talked about just about everything. Um, you know, we really dove into her career and uh, and it's pr it's pretty amazing. Um, her time at Sharasel and Awin and starting entry level at Sharasel uh, and ending that step in her career as the vice president uh, of Sharasel and all that uh, all that entails. Um, uh, Sarah was kind enough to share with me her leadership lessons, uh, and the big one was kindness. Uh, and she talks about engagement and gave me and you a bunch of ways that you can uh, you can engage your your staff. But then, you know, we dove into issues like uh, morality and corporate morality and how that's impacting shopping dis uh, decisions of consumers and how it's kind of shifting. I'm not going to give it away. You got to listen to it. Uh, but when we talk about 
pivots that affiliate marketers and and brands in general are making during this time. We dive into some really unique types of partnerships uh, that you can have uh, with uh, 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 affiliates and how to really utilize them right now. So this is a great podcast. It's about an hour and 10 minutes long. I think you'll find it really valuable. And Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, hopefully someday soon we get to, to have a drink face-to-face uh, and can continue our discussion. So why don't we just dive right in to my discussion with Sarah Visco Blay. Well, good afternoon, Sarah. I am so excited to talk to you. And I have to admit, I am a little nervous. Welcome <laughs> to the podcast. Well, thank you, Jamie. I'm so excited to be here. And likewise, I have excited butterflies, I would say. <laughs> I guess that's the way, you know, it's all how you frame it. You that's can true. be nervous or excitement. And I have, I have in the past struggled with anxiety and that reframing from I'm super nervous and anxious to, oh, I'm actually excited. When you realize they're the same thing, yeah. it feels the same, it really makes a difference. So I too am very excited. We'll <laughs> reframe <go>. that. <laughs> exactly it. Exactly uh, well, how are you doing today? I am doing great. It's a beautiful day um, here in Chicago. Sunny, you know, you can't really uh, wish for much more. That, that's awesome. Now, how about you? It's you know I'm I'm doing well. Um, it seems that <laughs> every week we have new things to deal with. Yeah. Um, you know, yesterday I saw the news on the uh, Beirut explosion was un uh, just unreal. Unreal. Yeah, I know. So you know, thinking of it's those people in the uh, the just the like the I don't even know how big of an area that impacted was crazy. You know, I was. Um, thinking about the same thing. And actually my husband and I were talking about that earlier today. And he was mentioning that there was a similar explosion here, which I, I didn't even realize. Um, but he was saying that, you know, it affected airlines and, uh, yeah, many casualties. So it's, yeah, it's unbelievable. This year is, um, you just never know what to expect. I am telling you each week, like you said, there's something new between murder hornets and, uh, yeah. COVID and the economy. I mean, there's so much um, that I think people are dealing with. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, too, it, it really, for myself especially, but I'm sure everybody, obviously, there's so much um, that you can learn about yourself through that, you know, and what you kind of overcome and that you're maybe more adaptable than you had previously given yourself credit for. And, um, you know, just kind of how we pull together and pull through and, and rely on each other, you know, to build each other up. So, through all the troubles, I think there's a lot of beauty um, in the year too. Yeah, and and I've had those conversations of like this has been a time of learning about yourself. I've learned that uh, uh, quarantining is my spirit animal. Yeah, I am totally okay <laughs> staying at home. Yeah, all the time. I had no <laughs> problem with it. There was no adjustment period. It it's been. I, you know, I know people are struggling out there with it and there's a lot of angst around it and a lot of difficulty. Uh, but yeah, I learned like I, to a, to a fault, I can be by myself and with my family and not interact, uh, yeah. in, in other areas. And that's, you know, now I can see kind of where that's been a problem. What, do, what was like one thing you learned about yourself through all this? Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I think that traditionally I always 
think of or thought of myself as kind of an extrovert with a little bit of introvert, you know, tendencies. And um, just, yeah, I agree with you 100%. Through quarantine, I thought it would be a lot more difficult than it actually has turned out to be. And it not too long ago, I was thinking about that for myself, like, should I be concerned that I don't care that I'm not leaving the house? Like, is that okay? Should I be wanting to do this more? You know, but I think we've just, um, you know, found more ways to connect to people. So you still do have some level of interaction with your friends or family. And, um, you know, I, I feel pretty blessed that in our, you know, we don't, we're in downtown Chicago, so I'm not in a huge amount of space, which is really what I worried most about because I've got my stepson and my husband here and hmm. two cats, um, you know, in a condo <laughs> with no yard. So I really thought that oh, we man. were going to struggle with not having, you know, more just space, you know, to breathe like you've got out there. Right. Um, but it's been yeah. I think you just uh, you adapt quickly and and we've gotten along, luckily. And uh, so no complaints. And it's surprisingly, you know, kind of comfortable, like you said, um, you know, kind of I've uh, tackled the uh, the table here is like my makeshift little office and it's uh, working out just fine that's great we're actually you know and we do have a lot of room so I, I do have to like that's a big caveat I I live on 10 acres so the quarantining is it's so different than uh, you know the struggle was very little for us than compared yeah. to you know someone living in the city like yourself I I I, in the beginning, I had conversations with people in Brooklyn and, uh, and LA and, and things like that. And, and even in Europe, some of the major cities in Europe and the experience was so dramatically different. So my heart goes out to, to you and to everyone else who's had to deal with this, uh, differently. Yeah. I think that's so true. You know, I likewise was uh, chatting with folks in New York and that, you know, I don't know. I think it's all relative, right? You always, I, f- I feel like there's a cartoon about that where there's, um, you know, somebody who's wishing that they had, they're on a bike, wishing they had the beater car, the beater car, yep, you know, yep. wishing up, up, up. And so it just, you know, you never know. And it's all relative to your um, experience, I think. But yeah, I was thinking the same thing because, you know, while, you know, we may not have a ton of room to roam, we have, you know, the condo and at least, you know, a full kitchen. And then, yeah, I think about, you know, my heart goes out to those and even smaller spaces with the half kitchens or the kitchenettes or maybe even no stove, you know, you just, yeah. you know, there's always, um, I don't know, a lot to be grateful for. Yeah. And, you know, it, like you said earlier, a lot of people, you know, now's the time you really get to see the good in people. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen plenty of you know, awfulness lately as well. But one of the things that my biggest concern right now, or one of them is as we get back to school, um, we're fortunate enough that my wife has homeschooled for a really long time. Um, You know, we don't have to be a dual income home. And when we look at single parents or, you know, uh, people who have to work both, you know, two places. So my wife is helping out with a, a few people here locally to help them as, you know, you know, back to school, isn't looking like you're actually going back (laughs) physically anywhere. So that's something that I don't know if we've really determined how that's going to impact things uh, in the, in the, in the third quarter this year. Yeah, I do um, agree. You know, my heart really goes out to all of those parents because like you said, with a variety of, you know, whatever circumstance they may have, be it single parents or two parents working or, you know, whatever, kids of all ages, where they may have been in different um, school buildings, you know, if it's high school, middle school, or what have you. And yeah, just having to quickly figure out when there is no 
there is no right or wrong answer right now because, you know, they're trying to figure it out as we go. Yeah. So it really is unprecedented. And, um, yeah, I mean, just have to take my hat off to tip of the hat to everybody that's trying to figure <laughs> it out, you know, from the teachers and the parents and, yeah. um, you know, all of it. And, and how quickly we've been able to spin up, you know, the technology piece of that has just been really, really impressive. Um, yeah. You know, and I, I know that they've had, yeah, exactly. You know, and just so quickly having to, not only for the students to get used to the online learning, but for the teachers to figure out the lesson plans. And, you know, I know it hasn't been perfect, although, you know, for everybody across the board, but, um, you know, it's just, yeah, when people come together, it's amazing what you can accomplish in a short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. I, that has been impressive. So moving on to other things, we could probably talk COVID I know, and for- pandemic <laughs> and for, for the entire hour. Uh, I don't know if people would enjoy that. We get that so much everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, so for our listeners, like, tell us, you know, how did you become an affiliate marketing legend? Like, what's your career path been? Legend and you are an generous, affiliate marketing legend. No. <laughs> well, um, let's see. My career has been uh, the following, I would say. I started out in Michigan. Actually, I was working at the Michigan Association of Broadcasters um, for seven years. And that is a nonprofit association that supports the local television and radio stations in the state. So that was a really fun job. I actually landed that through an internship that turned into full-time and and stayed there for a good number of years doing their membership and services for the association. So that covered, you know, a variety of projects too, like their awards presentations. Um, but I think most impactful or, you know, the biggest uh, takeaway or proud moment was helping to roll out the Amber Alert system for the state of Michigan. So um, we mm-hmm. were able to be involved with that from the broadcast level to kind of coordinate you know, for the stations and how those alerts go out, but then also with the state police and the state legislatures um, to get the program off the ground because it was in its inception when I was there. So uh, that's where I started. And, um, you know, after seven years, just ready for a change, wanted to move to the big city. So came to Chicago and was recruited by Brian Littleton um, to come join ShareASale, which was relatively young. It was 2005. So they were about five years old. And Brian was looking to create a client service division for the network to really support the merchants at the time. So I had a lot of like, are you sure moments? Because um, while I definitely had, you know, marketing and PR and, uh, you know, client um, experience through the broadcast association, I did not have any affiliate background. but luckily, you know, Carolyn Tang or Carolyn Komet now uh, was working at ShareASale. And so I was able to work under her and she really showed me the ropes and continues. You know, she was such a veteran, still is. Um, Another legend. legend. I would say true legend in this space <laughs> yeah. and uh, definitely a mentor. So that was unbelievable. And um, so that's kind of how I started out with ShareASale. And yeah, that just advanced over 14 years uh, where I was building out their client service team. Yeah, which, you know, from when I started was really just focusing on the merchant side. And through the years, I was overseeing then the publisher, agency, merchant, tech integration, and our support, customer support teams. So it really kind of, you know, grew and there was definitely a lot of um, pivots and sort of leadership lessons, I guess, through that time and just building that department. 
And then Mm -hmm. we were acquired 2017 by AWIN. So at that time, that's when I was tapped to be their VP and run all the operations for our Chicago office um, and for ShareSale brand. Yeah. So it was really cool to be able to go through not only an acquisition like that, but having then, you know, these new resources in AWIN, which was a global company, you know, so just seeing their operations and um, being able to learn from their leaders and kind of leaning on each other in that way, it was a very unique uh, time. And even from a leadership perspective too, you know, having to go through something that was a new challenge for everybody. And um, so, yeah, that was great. So that was the last couple of years. And at the end of 2019, I decided to leave ShareASale. Um, and again, just kind of all on good terms, but just ready to, you know, take a new step, have a new challenge, um, really kind of saw, I feel like the full kind of life cycle of a career there. Um, so ready for something new. And interestingly enough, when I left, I didn't have a plan. I really focused all my energy on making sure I made a good transition out of ShareASale, mm-hmm. saved up my money to be able to then, you know, all right, then when I leave, I'm going to give myself a few months to find my next um, career, you know, my next, uh, you know, point of life, if you will. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, so enjoyed the holidays and uh, family time, had a new job set to start in February, which then COVID. So here we go. You know, mm. it was initially the offer was postponed and then the offer was indefinitely postponed. So then I was like, uh oh, <laughs> so much for yeah. my trying to, you know, make a nice exit and, and really putting my exit strategy first. I was like, oh crap, now, uh, you know, this offer felt, well, didn't necessarily fall through, but it's indefinitely postponed. So I needed to really quickly um, come up then with a new plan. And in COVID, where, you know, the, um, you know, the opportunities are, are much more competitive and things like that. So ended up making a quick pivot into, what I was lucky enough, you know, started as initial project has kind of grown and evolved that my 100% focus is now on independent contract and freelance work. Um, so I'm so happy about that. It's ended up being a big surprise, but in the best way, you know, where it really feels like, oh, this maybe is actually where I meant to be this whole time. I just didn't know it. You know, I hadn't planned for yeah. it. Oh, yeah. But um, yeah, in the process of creating my LLC and uh, just need to kind of finalize my name. I feel like oh, I need to do a, uh, you know, like a competition or something. I need help. There you go. I have been struggling with our name for a decade and <laughs> I can't get away from it. So, <laughs> you know, I would say do the work. I I, I said JEB Commerce because it was simple. Uh, I could uh, trademark it and I could move forward quickly. Uh, and um I guess I guess it's been successful, but you know, always you know wanted to get my name off of it. But that you know, one of the things that is you know, I, I definitely want to talk about what you're doing now. Uh, but I I don't want to skip over ShareSale. You know, that's a pretty awesome trajectory. Um, you know, you started out as an account manager, and I yeah. would assume that's relatively you know entry level in the organization. One hundred percent. And and you you in that time you went from there to running uh, that organization after the acquisition. What was that like through through that journey? Now you know we've had strong relationships with ShareSell for a really long time, uh, and you know we've had the the blessing of 
uh, knowing uh, all of you guys really well. Um, so it, 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 you know, is not surprising that that trajectory is possible, but what, tell me what that's like to, to enter on that first rung, achieve the top and, and, and then, you know, be able to transition out. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of it, honestly, so much of, I think in life in general, success, there's a lot of, um, I always, I always say, I always try to stay humble and kind because so much of it while yes, you know, it's dedication, hard work. And, um, you know, I don't want to take away from, I guess, the accomplishments of what you do as a person, you know, um, to achieve success, but there is a lot of the right place in the right time too. You know, I was lucky enough to come into an organization that was in a startup. It was in its infancy, you know, so you're there from the beginning and, or, you know, relatively the beginning. And, um, Mm -hmm. and Brian was, uh, so smart and such a marketing genius in so many ways. And along with his brother, Michael, our CTO was able to build agile and, you know, cutting edge technology for the network. So, there's a lot of the work that they're doing too, to establish that groundwork, to get the name out there and create the success of the organization. So then I'm lucky enough to then be inside of, you know, a growing company that's seeing a lot of success, which then, you know, that fuels everything that enables you to be able to be hiring more people and enabling you to grow. And um, so, so that I think is a big piece of the pie in general, you know, um, is staying kind of grounded and humble in that sense. But yeah, it was absolutely um, a lot of lessons learned and a lot of um, cool things that we were able to carve out for ourselves. So much of the job was entrepreneurial. And I think that that lent itself to maybe some of the success was really, you know, for us, we were seeing people advance their careers when they were able to, to have kind of an entrepreneurial mindset in that you're always looking for ways that you can um, participate or contribute when it may not be asked of you, you know, because when you are a startup, these things don't exist already. There aren't big Mm -hmm. processes, you know, so um, really having to, you have to insert yourself in a way um, that gets you kind of uh, to the forefront or, or gives you opportunities to be able to, um, to, to grow and to strive. So that could be anything from, coming up with processes that are, can be used internally to seeking out maybe external things that you can participate in, like, mm. um, you know, affiliate summit, you know, being a speaker or asking to, you know, maybe go after new clients, you know, could be anything, you know, but just always thinking about how you can better advance the company will help to advance yourself. That's a huge distinction. Do you think that's a common thing found in, you know, because you obviously must have hired and been in the interview process at, at different levels at, uh, at those organizations. Did you see that a lot or is that initiative self-starter, um, is that something that's unique? Jamie, that's a great question. And I would like to ask (laughs) you too, because I, I feel like when we first were doing interviews, you know, like back in the way, way back in the day, you know, so much of our process was just a gut check. Can I hang out with this person, you know, for eight hours a day or 12 hours a day? Um, yeah. 
you know, a lot of it was, eh, they'll learn, you know, we can always teach somebody affiliate marketing. It's not going to be a skill that a lot of people know already. It's not necessarily taught in schools, like all these things, you know, back 10 years ago, um, we really just kind of relied on the clicky factor, if you will, like how well you click with somebody, personality, that kind of thing. Um, and then obviously that has, you know, as you kind of grow and mature, we came up with, I would say more sophisticated um, hiring practices, you know, where you're really going through either um, giving them tests, you know, of mm -hmm. like presentations that they may have to do, or um, we used to give people blog examples where they essentially set up an affiliate account and maybe have to put tracking links on their site and that kind of thing. So much more in depth in terms of the skill set that you're looking for. And, and that was one thing that I always try to figure out how to best pull out of people is the self starter mentality, mm -hmm. because I, I do think it's difficult sort of to find. I mean, I think it's certainly a percentage of people you either have it or you don't. And in the same way that you might, you know, some people just are fine with that too. They may just want to come to work and get their job done and um, they can be very effective doing that. Um, but they maybe aren't going to be wanting to or willing to put in sort of some of that extra effort, which is fine. You need all types, you know, I think, mm -hmm. but yeah, definitely for the organization and in certain growth periods, you know, we really needed a specific, you know, that kind of self-starter. So I think it's hard to flesh that out sometimes in an interview process and something that I always certainly did try different um, methods or, you know, different line of questions, you know, to try to find that. But it's, it's interesting because I think for us, I certainly came across um, surprises, if you will. Some people, maybe you hire, you assume have these qualities and then end up not or, or the other way around too, or maybe they end up being a really big superstar that you hadn't anticipated. So I haven't found the magic answer for that. How, how, how do you, uh, tackle that with your interviewing processes. I was just hoping you had the magic answer. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, we, we have struggled with it. So I would love to share all my hiring mistakes. Um, we don't have time today for that. Yeah, I feel like that could be its own, you know, that's a whole nother uh, episode. Oh, is a whole, yeah, a whole other episode. And, you know, it took me a long time to identify that that initiative was a thing we wanted to hire for. Yeah. Um, so like in my head, I, or somewhere in me, I knew that's what we wanted, but I, it took me years to articulate that. Um, because like, like I'm sure you, I, I've never had an issue with that. Um, uh, I've had the blessing of growing up in a family that that was just what we did. Like you were, yeah. we talked business at the dining room table um, I had a resume probably a decade earlier than most people. Like we talked about this stuff. I, you know, we helped my dad get uh, his next career moves, all this sort of stuff. So um, it was really difficult for me to see that, that that's not everybody and that that is yeah. unique. So we made a lot of mistakes uh, in our hiring and brought people on. But I do think like that's the difference between like a B plus or an A player and an yeah. A plus player. Um, and so what we've done now is we spent a lot of time about four years ago diving into what are the characteristics we want? And we did the same thing. Like, do we want to work with these people? Um, will they be a good fit? Cause like a startup, 
most of this stuff we can teach, you know, it, it's, but if you don't want to build relationships with people, if you don't want to take the initiative to be the best that you can be, yeah. uh, you're, you're going to struggle. So we actually landed on, um, four characteristics, uh, from a Patrick Lencioni book. Um, mm. and they are humility, hunger. And now that we're on tape, I'm going to forget the other two. <laughs> <But> <laughs> It's hunger, humility. So anyway, but those are the two hardest ones to find. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, we also had, I had to take myself out of the interview process until the very end because I had to learn that there's a part of me that sees the best in every single person. Mm. And I also think I can help them uncover that. Yeah. And there's a little bit of arrogance in there that I can discover that and help them, you know, oh, I can turn this around for them. Um, so we changed the yeah. hiring process. Uh, I'm at the end after everyone thinks it's uh, a good hire and the team is trained on the process and what the characteristics of hunger is what that initiative is. So um, I have a question at the end that I ask that's from a uh, from a Tim Ferriss podcast, uh, mm. with Cal. Oh, he's, he does the, what I learned, um, uh, column for Esquire. And okay. he asks a question, uh, uh, it's Dr. Dre's question. So Dr. Dre would ask this question say, what was the last project that kept you working on it for more than 36 hours straight? Oh, I love that. Yeah. And now most of my staff has stolen that. So the, by the time I'm in the interview, I have to come up with something <laughs> else. But it it talks about passion. It talks yeah. about, you know, and so that's, that's, you know, we try to come up with questions to discover that, come up with, yeah. you know, we have different interview process, you know, steps in the process, and we try to identify that. So I haven't found a single bullet or yeah. a silver bullet. Um, I can say that we've been way more successful um, with that than every other thing I've tried. Yeah, I think that's a great question, even just for self-reflection. You know, I found yeah. myself kind of thinking about that in this career transition, you know, early, early on when I was trying to think of like, all right, where do I want to go next? Do I want to stay in this industry? Do I want to go in a new industry? You know? just trying to kind of figure out, um, you know, what was going to, like you said, what, what, what am I passionate about? And um, that's what I ended up doing. I found myself in one interview process where they had a project and I, you know, I don't know, I took it. I, I didn't know what to really expect of it in terms of how I was, how much I would enjoy it. And it was basically just a data dump and you had to go through this data and come up with, recommendations, you know, so they say like, come up with a few recommendations based on this data. Anyway, I found myself working on this for like 12 hours. I was up till two in the morning. I had ended oh, up wow. with like a dozen recommendations. Just I couldn't stop myself because I loved yeah. it so much. And I didn't. I'm now excited about it. Yeah, Tell me I'm more. like, <laughs> I didn't even know that about myself. You know what I mean? It was really surprising um, to just be aware of that and to recognize like, oh, yeah, this is that sort of fire of excitement that I love. And okay, I didn't know data analyst was like one of those things. But um, so it's a good, I think that's a great question and good for everybody to kind of reflect on. Yeah, I would say 90% of people look at me like, what? 
you know, they, they've never done anything that yeah. they didn't go. They they stayed up overnight working on, and and it, like you said, it's good self reflection. There are a few things, but maybe it's been a while for me. I've spent all night working on something. Um, but yeah, that that's awesome. So you you've led uh, probably one of the funnest teams. Uh, I've ever had the pleasure of working with and, and shout out to, to Nick and Tiffany. Yeah, uh, you definitely. three have, uh, have always been some of the, the most fun uh, uh, team to work with, but also individuals. So tell me about some of the, and, and then you led through a time of acquisition and transition. Um, you know, tell me what are the, some of the keys for you uh, leading teams, leading yourself, leading companies um, yeah. in general and then through turbulence. Yeah. You know, um, I do think, you know, there have been so many lessons learned and like you said, through either acquisition or just, just through time spent, you know, um, growing a company. So I think some of the key things, you know, like I said, for me, sort of a personal ethos is always to be humble and kind. And I think that helps to keep you grounded. And I think it's also, you know, kindness. That's one of the things that we really try to get across, not only obviously kindness to each other, um, but to clients, you know, that can be a very hard thing to do when you've got somebody that may be upset and angry and, you know, maybe Mm. calling you names or whatever it may be, but to always just try to remain that kind of calm, kind, you never know what somebody else may be going through that could be triggering this. And if you just kind of um, can express that sort of calm kindness, you tend to be able to get through to people a little bit better and resolve in a, you know, in a good way. Um, So I think that that's always just kind of something I personally try to hold on to. And I think it actually can work against you in some ways, which has been interesting for me in terms of the struggle, you know, personal reflection of, should I be hanging on to this or not? Because I think people, you know, can equate humble with a lack of confidence or maybe confuse kindness with weakness. So it can be hard and challenging, but I think, you know, through the end for me, I think it's important to just retain that because I found that it helps you to be much more approachable, both with staff and clients and um, just your life interactions, you know, and how you want to be. But also, I think just from a leadership perspective, I think it's really important to stay engaged and to stay excited. Um, Those are the two main kind of takeaways, I would say. And from an engagement standpoint, that's both, you know, anybody both on a personal level and also in their work. So, you know, I found that sometimes if you end up having interpersonal conflict or conflict within a team, oftentimes it could just be sort of personality clashes. So I always tried to find ways that we could engage our staff and our team members um, so that they could get to know each other in a more whole way, you know, much more well-rounded so that you have a better understanding of where people maybe are coming from. And that doesn't necessarily, you know, I think happy hours are awesome and great, but doesn't have to necessarily be happy hours because maybe, you know, some people don't want to stay after work or maybe people don't drink. Like you just, you never know. So I always try to come up with other creative ways too, that you can mix it up and kind of keep it spontaneous. So some of the my favorite things that uh, we did. I was just going to ask that. <laughs> yeah. Um, the favorite things that I've done were we did a staff Olympics, you know, kind of office style. We did a Olympics day 
um, in the office. It was really fun. We've done, um, I like to do Pictionary. Maybe we always had these weekly meetings. And if I didn't have, you know, something for that week or, you know, I don't know, maybe people were out. I always like to do that was going to be our Pictionary day, make it a whole big office thing. Um, we've done trivia. Yeah, even you could do things like um, those escape rooms are fun, like all sorts of different things. Oh, Taco Bell Tuesday was another one that I used to do. So some people, you know, they may respond to something. You know, they maybe hate Taco Bell, but maybe they love trivia. Like you're going to hit on something eventually if you kind of keep it creative and fun. So um, being engaged, so in a personal way, but then professionally, I would say you can stay engaged by always maintaining the standards for yourself that you expect of anybody else, you know? So I would never ask Mm. my team to do something that I wouldn't be willing to also do. So like for Black Friday, for example, if we needed team members to come in over the weekend, I'm not going to sit there and be like, yep, you need to go in. Well, good luck with that. You know, I'm going to be at home enjoying the holiday. Like, no, even if I can't, um, people do that. I know. And so I think, you know, the best managers that I've had in life and, um, what I try to kind of emulate is that like to really roll up the sleeves and always be willing to, to get dirty. If I'm going to ask the same of others, you know, and I think that really helps to earn the respect of others. Um, and they know that you then really do truly understand. And it's not just lip service. You know, if you are also, you know, I can remember going in and helping with um, even tickets in a VP role. I was also helping out with our customer support tickets just because maybe I knew that we were slammed and I wanted to help mm-hmm. them out or if maybe somebody was out, you know. So you're just never above any task, I think. And like I said, then you're you're living up to the same standards that you expect um, of others. And I think you can do that even if you're not in the role. So I think it's easier to do when we were in the same team, you know, when I was in client services and I knew how to also respond to clients and that kind of thing, but taking over for share sale, you know, now I was looking after our dev team too, which obviously if they had an issue, I am not a tech, you know, I don't know how to fix dev issues, but I could stay up, you know, like, so if something broke, let's say on a weekend, I could stay up with them until it's fixed just on Slack, making sure that they knew I was there, that I was paying attention. I could watch the, you know, the emergency communications so that they don't have to worry about, or oh, our clients upset or not. You know, I could watch that at least while they're trying to fix the technical yeah. issues. But, you know, again, even though I can't actually help fix the problem, they at least know that I cared enough to try to be involved, you know. Yeah. And, and be there for them, that support. You know, I love that phrase, maintain the standards you expect from uh, everyone else. Um, and then you talked about humility. And one thing that I think we get humility wrong, like you said, like weakness and and uh, the definition that we use is they have, you know, an adequate or a, a realistic understanding of their, uh, their strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. So being able, you know, to know, like, I do this very well, and I don't do that very well. Uh, and having the humility to be able to see the differences is huge. Um, and I wrote down all those examples of things, <laughs> ways you keep the team engaged, because that's super important right now. We're, we're, we went remote, um, I think, 
end of March, April. Um, we are now going fully remote for uh, all of 2021 and actually um, uh, moving our, our large office to a very small one, just a small meeting place uh, for a few of us that need to kind of get out. Um, but that sort of engagement is even more important now. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it really, you know, uncovers sort of that personal level too, because people are at home. So there could be all sorts of fun things that you can do there, like showing off your pets or, you know, I don't know, even having cooking contests where you maybe show your, you know, uh, like those Pinterest fails, see if people can oh, create. Oh, I have many of those. Yeah, <laughs> various <laughs> projects. Uh, you could do art, you know, from home. You could do those paint uh, kind of classes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're working on some way to keep everyone spending time uh, together. And, and I think like that engagement, what I've learned through uh, leading um, two companies, uh, also leading in church was uh, a shared experience mm -hmm. brings people together and it, it gives them, especially in a really diverse team, yeah. uh, it gives them a common thing to talk about and something, an experience that they share that then they can build off of. And so, so those things, like some people can kind of look at those things, oh, staff Olympic day, or, um, we do a happy hour and one of us makes a drink, um, you know, or something like that as, you know, this is not business. I, you know, harumph, harumph. I need to just, uh, you know, we just need to produce, Yeah. but they miss that. Like people want connection and they're productive when they're happy. Yes. Um, and that engagement is super important. So I'm really glad that you highlighted that. Yeah. And you're right about shared experiences too, you know, because there's inevitably, no matter what sort of outing or, um, you know, because we used to do, you know, even sporting events that you maybe can go to a restaurant dinners or whatever, but there's inevitably going to be some sort of funny story. <laughs> there's going to be something that happened. <laughs> somebody did something, you know, and those end up being those memories or, you know, moments that people can look back on and, and, uh, have that commonality. Yeah. We did a, uh, we did a scavenger hunt, a photo scavenger oh, yeah, hunt those. and Nick and, uh, Nick and one, two other, uh, from your team were here with us and that was amazing and hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, one thing you and I talked about, and it kind of goes to how things are changing, uh, economically and just in the in the industry that we talked about on our prep call was morality in brands and and you wanted to share a little more of that so um, do you remember what we talked about yeah it's it's interesting I was I think referencing there were a couple of several so that's what I think really caught my attention there were two um, not related webinars, industry, just sort of events, you know, speeches um, where people were talking and, and just discussing, you know, how corporations have changed and the relationship with consumers and what have you. Anyway, so on two separate occasions, they were talking about and they referenced as a quote that um, consumers are looking to corporations to be their moral compass, that, you know, individuals look to those brands to define for themselves what their moral compass should be. And I found that to be really fascinating and an interesting maybe shift um, and got me thinking, you know, what is, what's the deal with that? You know, cause I feel like, yeah. you know, we 
really, I, to, to me, you know, just growing up and how you develop your morals, I feel like these are through the conversations you have with your family, your friends, your mentors, your spiritual leaders, you know, um, teachers, leaders, all of this. They're through relationships, you know, through deep personal relationships. And so it got me thinking, first, I don't know if that was maybe just a misquote where they were really trying to say that, you know, now more than ever, consumers are maybe looking for purpose-driven brands who solve problems or who maybe are in line with what they believe in. That, 100%, fantastic. I think, you know, I, I, I think that's a great movement and I love seeing that, but it was interesting that it was not phrased that way, you know, that they were, they were saying the opposite, yeah. that it was really that people are looking to have the brands defined for them. Um, so I think that is an interesting shift. And I, um, I'm curious if you've maybe, have you seen that or heard of that or, um, yeah, I, I, maybe I haven't been paying attention. I, I didn't notice it until you mentioned it. And I think there's a small, um, distinction that is a major difference Yeah, be between what you said of environment's important to me. I need a jacket. I'm going to Patagonia. Uh, or, or on, you know, maybe on the other side, second amendment is important to me. I'm going to go to this company that supports that. That's different than, oh, I love Patagonia. Well, what do they think is important? Yeah. How should I think Patagonia? How should I think? And right. I keep coming, like, there's all these kind of things that tie together, but I keep coming back to the movie Wally. -E. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. And I keep thinking how how this is just another way that we're looking to someone else to do the work so we don't have to. And, and it's it, to me, and maybe this is harsh, uh, maybe just this is a frustration of what's been going on with masks and no masks and uh, uh, all lives matter, black lives matter and all of this. Uh, but it seems to me like I wouldn't, I don't go to a company for my moral compass. I go somewhere else for that. And then, Sometimes I shop according to that. Uh, sometimes I shop because it's what I want, to be yeah. honest with you. So I think that was really surprising to me. And now I'm kind of noticing it everywhere. So, I mean, that's what I was thinking. It's a, it's a, a way that we're, you know, there's, and is it because there's so much information available that we can't possibly weed through it and we trust uh, this yeah. company? And we trust this news network or we trust this personality. And I'm just going to, I'm going to outsource. Yeah. Yeah. My thinking for me. That's interesting. That is a good point. And maybe that, that is what it's about. Or maybe, you know, you bring up the good point with sort of influencers, you know, maybe if, maybe it's more that consumers are seeing in others who they want to be and they'll just emulate that. Um, but I think it's, you know, it, it is kind of a, it was an alarming slash frightening uh, trend yeah. to be hearing about just because, you know, at the end of the day, a company, they're looking to make money. You know, yes, it's going to be perhaps a mission backed company where they are giving back to the community in some way, shape or form. But ultimately, you know, no, no company that's for profit is going to have 100 percent altruistic, you know, mm -hmm. motives um, yeah. behind what they're doing. So I just. It just was struck me as is interesting because I feel like in a lot of ways consumers are much more aware and sort of awake, if you will, in terms of the research that they do to buy a product and knowing kind of 
maybe the sourcing and, and the manufacturing and all of it that goes behind it. So on one hand, it feels like we're becoming smarter as consumers in that sense. But then on the other hand, I was like, ah, but this seems like the exact opposite where we're, you know, becoming, I don't know, yeah. like you said, maybe lazy in a way um, to rely on others to tell us how to think it's just frightening. So I thought that was really interesting and um, kind of an interesting point to even think about from a corporation perspective in terms of that's a lot of pressure. And now they have to not only think about selling coats, but also defining a moral compass like what that's seems outside of the scope yeah and and like the advertising pers- uh, uh yeah. impact of that like now do do all our creative elements uh need to include a social uh aspect to it and will there be a brand for this political proclivity and then the same product but a different brand for this political proclivity um and, and then, yeah, so I, I, I wonder, like, practically, does that impact how we advertise products, not just through the affiliate channel, but any channel at all? Right. Right. Absolutely. And I do think it's interesting, you know, I, I do think there has been more and more where companies or brands are being more vocal about what their values are, whatever it may be. So that could be in line with something relevant or current. Um, or it could just be, you know, not, but just who they are and, and really trying to um, promote that more and more. I was on one, uh, one talk with um, the marketing, I think the CMO from Levi, Levi Jeans, and she was talking mm-hmm. about that, that, you know, they have always been big supporters in these variety of ways with their community, but they maybe were not as good at, um, communicating that and bringing that to the forefront. So post-COVID, you know, unrelated, you know, the causes maybe were not necessarily related to health care, you know, or giving back in that way that's related to COVID, but they still were making an effort to um, bring it to light, just some of the, some of the things that they support from a community standpoint in kind of this new, new age. I remember they were kind of on the the leading edge a few years ago with their um, their campaign of uh, you know the uniform of the revolution. I think it was that was their uh, one advertising campaign, um, and that was really putting a, a stake in the ground. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean that's it too, right? Like yeah. you have to kind of stand behind whatever it is that you may believe in, for better or for worse. Do you see that filter down to the affiliate channel? So, you know. It is the profitable performance marketing podcast, and we're definitely going to talk about affiliate marketing. But like these macro things have an impact, and typically, the affiliate channel is seen as very transactional. Mm. Um, you know, uh, a good portion of it is very offer driven. Uh, and now, but there have been affiliates and are affiliates that are socially minded. Um, you know, that are charity uh, driven. But do you see? that kind of change and and the the general uh you know changing that's going on socially and and this aspect of looking to brands for morality and and at the very least wanting to uh align with the brands that align with your morality and and your views do you see that trickling down to the type of partners advertisers work with the way that they work with them the way that they advertise to consumers through that cha- through this channel? Yeah, I think that's a great question and a and great point to bring up. And I, and I do, I think that um, 
I think that brands are much more conscious of who they are partnering with and maybe much more aware of who they're letting in to promote their brands. And hats off to that. I mean, that's fantastic. You know, I, I think that that's always been um, kind of a weak point in affiliate marketing is, you know, when a brand may just set up a program and expect it to be kind of a magic bullet and they just let it run, you know, without a second thought, um, which is not helpful, you know. So I think that that is great that we're seeing more and more awareness there. Um, I think that we've also seen a lot of of um, people thinking outside of the box in terms of their partnerships. So maybe be it non-traditional affiliates or maybe trying to even partner up with other brands. Um, I've seen a lot of examples, you know, of that where, where brands maybe come together to say, hey, maybe I can feature you in your newsletter. We're both kind of trying to mm -hmm. accomplish the same goal here. Um, so they're maybe doing more brand to brand partnerships, but also, you know, just non-traditional. So maybe through, I feel like that's been around for a bit, you know, cause at Sherisale days, you know, we were talking about the storefronts, um, for example, that tool, yeah. I don't know, we rolled that out maybe five or seven years ago, but um, even then, kind of tapping into these non-traditional affiliates. And it's been great to see this come up more and more in conversations um, where people are maybe proactively trying to think about that. So are they partnering up with schools or rotary clubs or um, even doctor's offices or whatever it may be, you know, just kind of thinking of other new ways. Um, and I think not only a result of just COVID or, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, you know, not just sort of the situations that are around us, but also just from an economic standpoint of trying to find new revenue streams. Um, so I think mm -hmm. that's been really been cool to see. And I think it's been cool to see too, just for the publisher side, likewise, thinking of new models, you know, we're continuing to see new um, publishers come into the space that maybe were only working on tenancy before, but now maybe are open to CPA. Um, so that's been mm -hmm. really cool. There's also been a lot of talk of content. So the type of um, publisher sites that the consumer is looking to, there's a lot more time spent now on research. Um, so consumers are really you know, going to maybe review sites to read up on products before they're making purchases. So there's been a lot higher demand um, for those content sites, which has been, um, I think, kind of a new COVID trend. And the other thing that I think is exciting about the time that we're living in right now are just all of the the new demographic coming into the e-commerce space, you know, so there's been a lot of talk yeah. about, you know, the boomers uh, generation who maybe were never comfortable shopping online that are now. And so we're shifting some of those shopping habits. And I think that's a great, you know, there's endless possibility there with publishers who maybe can target the older generations, um, but also for brands, you know, and how they're making their consumer shopping experience as easy um, as possible so that those consumers maybe continue to shop online even after um, stores open. So I think that's going to be a really exciting trend to see, you know, how much we can maintain this kind of e-commerce spike even after COVID passes. And I think if it's anything like, you know, we used to see this from a network level, in Q4, you would have, you know, big spikes and that would sometimes end up just resetting where your new bar is, 
you know, so then going yeah, into the yeah. next year, that's where we start. And then you're going up from there and there. And so I, I wonder if, and I hope that's, that may be what we see after COVID where now, you know, this is our new baseline um, and the growth will just be continuing. Yeah. And I saw somewhere on LinkedIn today, someone, I think it was LinkedIn. Uh, they said, you know, they posed the question, you know, are you taking advantage of the 10 year growth in e-commerce over the last 90 mm-hmm. days? And that concept of we've taken a 10 year leap yeah. in the last three months of, of migration is, uh, is enormous. Do you think that puts a greater emphasis on the importance of the affiliate channel? Um, does it elevate it? Uh, in terms of the other channels available to an advertiser, um, or does it do nothing at all? What do you think about that? Great question. I think it does. I mean, maybe that's because I'm in the space, so I'm hopeful that it does. But but no, I really do think that it does because um, what you can't argue with is the return that you see. You know, with affiliate, we know the PMA study um, they put out in 2018. I think they were quoted as uh, 12 to one on the ROAS. So you just, you know, you can't um, argue with those numbers. And it's, it's such a safe, I think, channel in terms of, for brands, in terms of what they're going to be investing. Um, You really can't compete with something that is purely performance-based. So um, I think it's a great time for affiliate. It's an exciting time um, to be in this space. And yeah, I think that, you know, there may be some level out um, you know, we obviously can't expect to see 10 year growth each year going forward, but I do think that we're going to yeah. kind of stay at this elevated level, um, and then see sort of natural growth from there. Yeah. You know, and you and I, we've been around for a long time. We've seen this before, um, in, in, in recessions in other, other instances that have kept us from going, uh, to our malls, um, Hey, I've produced a, a, a bump that we never saw, uh, you know, leave uh, the industry. Yeah. Um, one of the, you, you talk about unique partnerships that kind of brings to mind of, of and you've, you've said pivot a number of times. This is a great time to pivot. And one of the, you know, pivoting is one of the ways that uh, strong companies and affiliates um, and affiliate managers and, and people in the space can can use to succeed right now because you know when this happened there was a shock it's like what is going on then there was maybe dismay yeah. Yeah. Of, uh, everything's everything's burning and you know every month we have a new thing uh, to to seemingly every maybe every week to deal with um, what have been some of the unique pivots that that you've seen uh, in the industry oh man we have seen some unique things and. I feel like um, we've seen unique pivots both in the way operations are handled um, and unique marketing um, examples as well. I think early on, well, no, I'll start with this. I would say operations side has been really, it's been really um, inspiring, I guess, to see how traditional brick and mortar have quickly spun up and relied on their digital um, efforts. So from everything from, you know, the curbside pickup to um, maybe where they're offering part of their kind of consumer engagement that used to be offline, now online. Um, For example, there's a beauty brand who was talking about how so much of their um, unique, you know, value proposition is in their 
consults, their consultations that they used to have when people come into the store and they could consult you on your beauty needs and then make the recommendations for product. Um, so in COVID, they had to quickly pivot and then started offering where the associate was in the store, but they're doing virtual consultations. So you could go online and oh, wow. still be walked around and, you know, you're having sort of a, you know, maybe a Zoom or whatever digital consultation where you can see each other. Um, and then the associate was walking them through the store to provide some of that offline experience online and, you know, having to kind of come up with this and they spun it up in a matter of weeks. I think that's um, cool. You know, that kind of thing we've really seen. And even just locally, you know, with the curbside pickup here, you know, all of the um, the ways that maybe big box stores have um, created uh, ease of use for the consumer to be able to come and and do what they need to do online to make it safe um, for them to to do their shopping. So those have been kind of neat operational. I think from a marketing perspective, have you seen, did you see that uh, there was a Russian airline that launched, um, I think it was called a fly at home promotion where they were giving. I did not see that. Yeah, it was a really cool marketing, I thought, kind of a unique marketing campaign where they gave their customers uh, 100 free air miles for staying at home. So if you were a loyalty member with the airline, you could just log into their site and you would click, you know, an I'm at home button verifying that you were staying put. And they were giving their clients up to 3000, I think, loyalty points because you could go in every day for a period of a month or whatever. Um, wow. So that's kind of cool. You know, we've seen some really unique, I think, marketing efforts. There was um, even with product, I know Heinz, you know, we were doing a lot of puzzles, perhaps, here in our stay-at-home time. And uh, <laughs> yep. Heinz Ketchup, they did a giveaway where they created a, uh, it was like a 570-piece ketchup puzzle. It was just red, just a solid block of red. Um, and you could tweet at them, you know, like, who you would maybe do this <laughs> impossible puzzle with. And then they would send, they had like 57, you know, puzzles that they could give away. So, um, you know, I think that's been cool. And, and then obviously it's been fun to watch all of the, have you been doing this with your family, like the virtual uh, destinations that you could go to different museums or like when Andrew Lloyd Webber was releasing the musicals on YouTube, um, that kind of thing. It's been yep, kind of fun yep. to do that too. I think just unique ways. Yeah. We've seen a lot of our travel clients do yeah. that um, and, and to try and keep people engaged uh, you know, contests and, um, virtual tours and, and things like that. So we've seen a lot of that. Um, but yeah, the curbside stuff and whatever anyone can do, like shopping and retail, it's still happening. Exactly. Yeah. And you, 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 ha you can't, you just can't think of, you know, everything needs to be questioned and it all needs to be, how can you cater to the, the user and, and how do you, how do you do that? And the curbside and, uh, we have small, small stores here in, uh, in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and many have adapted very well. And others have said, you know, we're not going to do that. And they're no longer around. Yeah. Um, and so, so, and, and it's the, the, the aspect of pivoting is, is so important because things are changing, you know, I, in between when we talked about doing the podcast and then now doing the podcast, so much has changed. And it's only been two yeah, weeks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 
So it, it's almost like this pivoting needs to be less of a cliche or something someone talked about that you once right. heard, but a skill that you develop just like uh, writing and presentations and leadership. You have to be able to pivot and know how to do that and how to recognize a good pivot, how to test things quickly. And what I love about the channel that I, I think a lot of advertisers, and I was talking to uh, one that was a client of ours many years ago, and I, I could sense the same thing uh, with them that when we worked with them is they didn't look at their affiliate partners as a thousand different tests. And these partners that you get to work with that are testing with uh, you know, across industries, across audiences, across geographic locations, mm -hmm. And they're amassing this data of what's working and what isn't. And, and they're not cultivating that. They're not tapping into that. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I always like to ask is, is some of the basics. Um, you know, affiliate marketing, we drive revenue, but we really drive uh, profit. So from, from a top level with your experience, uh, you know, what's the difference and how do, how do we as a channel now um, wh what are we doing? What can advertisers take advantage of to make sure they're driving profitable uh, revenue, not just revenue? Yeah, that's a good, uh, good question. I think, you know, high level, obviously, you know, revenue, we're thinking about the income generated from your primary operations and profit then being whatever remains after your expenses and any additional revenue streams. So I think for advertisers, you know, their revenue is going to be the sale of their goods, um, but they can leverage their affiliates by looking at other partnerships that maybe will create those additional revenue streams. So um, kind of going back to what I was talking about earlier, where you're looking at maybe non-traditional partnerships that you can establish. And, uh, you know, one example I've been thinking about recently would be the sale of masks. You know, if you can do customized masks, maybe you partner up with a company like Shutterfly or Minted, who also do, you know, heavy emphasis on customization, but perhaps not in that kind of manufacturing. They're not doing textile, you know, and clothing. Um, so that could be an opportunity for a really unique and cool partnership to rely on each other. Um, to fill that kind of a void and it can be tracked through an affiliate channel. Um, and then, like I said, too, you know, you're just with the ROI, you're from an expense standpoint, you're just going to see greater profits than you might in other channels due to that return that you're going to see. Um, and I think, you know, another thing to think about just in terms of expenses and maybe long-term gains, I think there can be, um, good value in looking at different tenancy op options, you know, so you may be able to get into maybe a, a large media partner that, um, you know, for some upfront expense could yield long-term gains because now you may have evergreen, you know, affiliate tracking links on there and be able to get in front of an audience that you otherwise would not have been able to. And I think now is a really good time to be looking at that tenancy um, just because the publishers, you know, may be a lot more flexible than they would have been, uh, you know, last year or even a few months ago. Yeah. They're not the, you know, advertisers aren't the only one who are facing challenges right now. Exactly. So, you yeah. know, they're looking for different ways that they can bring in that revenue as well. So I think, you know, that's sort of a 
you know, out of the box way of, of looking at affiliate. And I know it's, it's a little bit removed because it's, you know, not purely the performance base when you're doing a bit of tenancy, but it does still have high um, return value there. And it obviously is tracked and you are going to be held most of the time to some sort of an ROI um, deliverable there. So, you know, I, I think that there's good um, opportunity. Yeah. And I, I never understood that, uh, the reluctance to do tenancies or paid placements, uh, you know, upfront payments in the affiliate channel. I know there are a lot of, uh, they call themselves purists, that if it's not a commission, a uh, percentage of sale, um, then it's not an affiliate program. And I know a lot of my peers, yeah. they, they won't work on that. And I always looked at it as uh, someone has an audience I want to go after. How can I negotiate uh, access to that audience? Yeah. And then whatever I can negotiate. And if I'm tracking it, voila, affiliate marketing. We did some really unique things, uh, you know, in the past 20 years. When I started, I worked for a medical e-commerce company. And uh, you know who buys medical stuff? Medical students. Yeah. Yep. And they have fraternities and they're raising money. And so we did a very uh, rudimentary affiliate program where they could buy all their books and that commission went to uh, to their uh, fraternal organizations. Worked really, really well. It was not standard. Mm -hmm. We did other stuff, like, you know, uh, package insert swaps early in the day, back in the day with 1-800-Flowers and between 1-800-Flowers and Coldwater Creek. So it was, it was like, you know, who's your audience? Who has access to that? And what kind of mutually beneficial relationship can you negotiate yeah. and how are you going to track it? Yeah. And I love that too, with the technology that the networks have created now too, it makes it a lot easier. You know, you can do tracking through your affiliate program that maybe is not online. Um, so having the ability to track through exclusive coupon codes or whatever it may be, I think there's so much more opportunity now than there was even five years ago to be that creative, exactly what you're saying, you know, to, to think about any sort of um, relationship that you can build, you know, from everywhere from just your, could be just your consumer and doing that word of mouth and the repeat customer and um, friend referral, that kind of thing. Um, but then also, yep, like yep. you said, if I was selling shampoo, I'm going to be looking to stylists and salons and, you know, those kinds of avenues in addition to obvious what you may think of more traditional affiliates or the, you know, people that may already have a website or an account in a network. But yeah, there's endless possibilities when you think about, oh, I can do affiliate with people that maybe don't even have a website. You know, it can literally be anybody yeah. that's, um, yeah, going to be using or, or can be a, an advocate for your brand. Yeah, we did one. We had a an equestrian client mm. um, that they had an audience with people who went to horse clinics. Yes. Well, it's not, uh, it's not a big digital environment at a horse clinic. We have horses. Uh, I go to a bunch of them. I know <laughs> there's not, you know, it's not like readily available Wi-Fi. Yeah. You're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, but you have this audience. And when I go to these things that, you know, you follow these personalities and if they tell me to buy X and Y, yeah. I'm going to buy X and Y. And so, we we used some of the network features that allowed that offline online integration and provided those clinicians 
with uh, stickers to put on their uh, trailers with uh, discounts for the people that, uh, you know, were there. And so one the really cool thing was we were able to establish another revenue channel uh, for a group of people. Mm -hmm. We were able to help that client reach like the perfect ideal customer, the moment they were ready to buy. And it saw a lot of success. And, and all of that was just completely, you know, foreign to, you know, traditional affiliate marketing, but it is totally affiliate marketing. Right. Yeah. 100%. I love that. I love that. I think I've seen something similar too with, um, gym apparel, you know, and tapping into personal trainers, mm. you know, so yep. being able oh, yeah. to have a trainer then tell you, okay, you're going to need these shoes and this you know, band or these weights or whatever, like you said, you're going to do your trusted source. Um, so it's perfect. It's a perfect, perfect way to kind of integrate affiliate, even in an offline yeah, experience. Definitely. And, and that's where we're going, you know, full channel integration. Um, Sarah, I have enjoyed this. We are almost 10 minutes over the time <laughs> that, that, uh, I asked you to set aside. Um, Every conversation I have with you is always fun. I, I really enjoy spending time. If if someone would like to get a hold of you, actually, you know what? Tell me like a little bit, if you have a moment, yes. what kind of projects are you excited about working on going oh, forward? Oh, yes. Thank you. Um, so what I'm really working on right now, I have uh, a few things in the pipeline. Um, I've been doing a lot of work with uh, the agency Team Bespoke, um, who's great set of ladies over there. And the work that I've been doing is is really publisher-based, a lot of publisher development. So um, if anybody needs help with, let's say, recruitment efforts, uh, that kind of thing, kind of getting um, more expansion and, and even thinking about these kind of non-traditional affiliates and um, those ways that you can grow uh, your program. That would be kind of the work that I'm doing and also working with Brand Cycle at the moment um, and helping them kind of goes back to our tenancy conversation. But so full disclosure, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that is also some of the work that I'm doing with some of their media partners and, uh, you know, their ad spots and, and selling those sponsored posts. So it's been really interesting kind of being on another side of the fence, if you will, you know, going from yeah, sort of yeah. a high-level operations to back into very strategic, um, this publisher side of things. So that's that's what I'm up to. And if you want to get a hold of me, I am at uh, sarabiscoblay.com or on LinkedIn. It's an easy way to, to stay in touch. Awesome. Well, I will include links to your profile and to your website in our show notes. Uh, so thank you so much. Good luck in your next endeavor. And if you do want to reach out to Sarah, please uh, do so. But Sarah, thank you so much. I learned a ton uh, from one of the, the I think, premier leaders uh, in the space and a true affiliate marketing legend. Thank you. you know, and you may not want to own that, but I'm going <laughs> to, I am going to promote that. We're That's That's what we're going to do here. Thank you, Jamie. You're very (laughs) kind. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion. I learned a ton uh, and I always do with these and Sarah delivered 
as well, if not better than anyone else. So I hope you learned a lot about affiliate marketing. I hope you learned a lot about leadership and, and the affiliate channel. So if you do want to get a hold of Sarah, you can go to sarahbiscoblay.com or find her on LinkedIn. I will include both of those in our show notes. And remember, if you need help with your affiliate program, we have a strategy development product that we can put together for you the exact strategy in all elements of your affiliate program. You can just go to jebcommerce.com slash strategy, and that will get you to that service. Or you can just email me at gethelp at jebcommerce.com, and I will help you out personally with that. Now, one thing I do also want to say is if you found this podcast valuable, can you go over to Apple and give us a review? Maybe share this episode on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, And also, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, I'd love to have you. You can email me at gethelp at jebcommerce.com. So anyway, if you love this podcast, please share it. Uh, If you have any other ideas for guests, please share it. And I look forward to chatting with you soon.